everybody. Welcome to Thy Strong Word. I'm Pastor A.J. Espinosa. We're reading the entire Bible together out loud, chapter by chapter. We're looking at Mark chapter 10 today. Uh, we keep on this this crazy pace of one chapter a day, even when we're in the Gospel of Mark, and there's just so much going on. And yeah, there's a lot of stuff in Mark 10 that uh, we, we could have spent more time on and uh, maybe we'll have a chance to talk a little bit about today. Uh, last time, really focusing on, though, the transfiguration and just all the, I mean, just really crucial for the whole book of Mark. Today, it's a very interesting chapter in Mark. Uh, it's probably, of like all the chapters, uh, the one where the Lord just seems to just outright do a lot of teaching, um, and it's just mostly teaching, in fact. So you've got the, the teaching on on marriage and divorce. You've got the, let the little children come to me, uh, the rich young man, um, the request of James and John. We do still get actually another uh, healing at the end. But as usual, when you have these healings, there's more than meets the eye. So we'll want to spend a little bit of time on this. Uh, you actually have the name Bartimaeus, of the guy who's healed. What exactly is the the nuance or the sermon kind of underneath the surface? So lots of good stuff today. And joining us, we've got we've got the Reverend Dr. Martin Noland, pastor at Grace Lutheran Church in San Mateo, California. Good morning, brother. Good to have you back with us. How are you? Fine. Thank you, Pastor Espinoza. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, and uh, it's great to be in the Gospels looking at uh, Mark chapter 10. This is, uh, yeah, like like we keep seeing, it's just, it's all a very interesting perspective that Mark gives us um, on all these things that maybe we've heard before in uh, Matthew and Luke, but it's worth taking a look at the, the way that Mark kind of ties it all together for us. Yes, so the uh, you had a good introduction. The uh, so this is the chapter between Transfiguration and Palm Sunday, basically. Uh, so yeah. it's it's looking forward to right in the middle of this chapter. Uh, Jesus predicts his death in detail, and so it, things are kind of coming to a climax in the gospel narratives, and that's that's part of the background of this. Right, exactly. Well, um, as I was saying, <laughs> you, you just don't have a lot of time to look at everything. So let's go ahead without any further ado. There's so many things in here. Uh, as we get started, would you, brother, open us up with a prayer? Yes, yeah, certainly. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you send your Holy Spirit upon us as we turn our hearts and minds to the words of the evangelist Mark and the stories and the teaching of Jesus, that we may learn from it to benefit our lives and those around us. We also pray for all those in our circle of acquaintances who may be suffering in various ways from the effects of this illness, the pandemic, and that it be your will that they be relieved and return to normal, and that you all that you bring this about for the glory of your kingdom and the bringing of more people into your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, let's go ahead. This, is, this has been really good doing this. Um, just go ahead and read the whole chapter first, everything all together, and then we can come back around and look at it piece by piece. Is there anything, um, you know, as we get ready to read the whole chapter in continuity here, before we read to kind of keep an ear out for? Um. Yeah, it's interesting that 
we notice in a couple places that Jesus gets kind of upset. The word is indignant in English. Uh, and it, that kind of doesn't fit our image of Jesus. It, hmm. It's not a loss of patience, but right. it's like his disciples are not getting it. And, and it's directed against his own disciples. So you might want to notice that as we read it. Um, and again, the, the center point is the uh, his prediction of his suffering and death. And, and I guess one question is, you know, why is that so central if it's like a conclusion, just, well, you know, it's the end of his life and then he goes on. Well, it's actually because this is why he came. So he came in order to receive uh, the, the sins of the world and to pay for them. And so that's why he keeps preaching and teaching about that. Uh, and so that's that's really the main thing that that really most important of all the things we look at in this chapter. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for bringing that out. It's certainly just what you know his uh, his, his attitude, and then of course you know his goal in saying all these things. So keeping an ear out for that. Let's go ahead then, looking at Mark chapter ten from the top. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What, therefore, God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. 
But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want, you to do the, <clears throat> we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, he began to cry and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way.
So we have certainly a lot of ground to cover today. Uh, what What's interesting, yeah, you know, uh, you mentioned, you know, being indignant. It was interesting how, you know, we, we had the little uh, children, right, coming to Jesus and the disciples were indignant. Uh, and then there was this kind of a reverse, well, they're, they're rebuking, right? And then he's indignant at them. But then there's this kind of like reversal uh, when, when it comes to the indignation. That was kind of one thing I noticed when the disciples then were indignant in James and John. But I think overall, the maybe the bigger thing that stood out to me reading it all together was how there, there's sort of this difference in who is going to come and follow Jesus, right? Uh, so you've got the little children, they they come, right? up And they're in, taken up into Jesus's arms. Um, the rich man, right? He is unable, he is reluctant to come. Uh, James and John, they want to come, but they want to come in glory. That's what they, they, they get the question, what do you want me to do for you, right? And then the Lord gives the same question, what do you want me to do for you, <laughs> to blind Bartimaeus, and he comes and follows. So like, it feels like it, throughout there's this difference in who's going to come and follow Jesus, and, and what does that look like? Yeah, that's really good. I mean, that ties together the different sections and the question of uh, what Christians have called discipleship. You know, what does yeah. that mean? What does that look like? And, you know, everybody is theoretically eligible because the invitation mm -hmm. is universal. But then we want to put our own, uh, <laughs> like, like the apostles, we want to put it on our own terms or the rich man, you know, mm -hmm. you know, on his terms. And Jesus says, no. It's on my terms. Mm -hmm. And the children are the ones the easiest because they don't put any terms on right. this. You know, they see Jesus and they say, I wanna I wanna be with Jesus and that's it, you know. So that you're right, I think there's an underlying uh theme there. Uh and that kind of surrounds the fact that Jesus' kingdom is is gonna be different. It's not gonna be a political kingdom of any sort. And he's going to die and suffer and be rejected by the world. So if you're going to be part of his kingdom, it's going to be part about death and suffering with him. So, yeah, that I think all those things play together into this chapter. Yeah, and I like the way that you're putting it about about the children. And it, it really, I think, helps helps that section to kind of come out a little bit because it, it's a shorter little section. And I think that sometimes we kind of just— I don't know, we, we don't really give it enough attention. We just say something like, well, you know, the children are important. And well, yeah, I mean, of course, I mean, and they're extremely important. Um, but, you know, like you were saying, it's interesting because, you know, the way that they come, right? I mean, that's that's what he says, let the little children come to me. It's about coming and uh, coming to Jesus and following him. And like you said, they don't have terms, right? Like it does, right. there is no like, well, but I want to do it this way or I want to do it that way or, but well, but I have certain conditions, right? No, the, the, like he's, they are the only group, right? Who the Lord doesn't have to say, well, what do you want me to do for you? Right. It's just, they just right. come. It's just automatic. Um, and yeah. And so we'll want to talk a little bit more about that, but uh, may, maybe the odd man out, I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, um, is, is the first section here actually about marriage and divorce. It seems to be kind of less, um, or at least it seems that way, perhaps. Uh, but I think I, th I think it actually gets there too, just in the sense of, you know, you you have a, you have this hard teaching, right? These crowds are coming to Jesus, but will they tolerate this difficult, controversial, 
a teaching, which is maybe not what they wanted to hear. So I think in a certain way, it's still dealing with this theme, this first section on, on marriage and divorce, where, you know, people are following Jesus because they want to hear him say inspirational things, right? But do you really want to come in Jesus, uh, come to Jesus if he's going to say something that challenges you and shows you your sin? And, and I think that that's there in this first section. Yeah, I agree. Um, so what do you think it is particularly that's that's challenging them? And, and particularly, you know, the Pharisees, it says they, they came up um, in order to test him with this question, right? So, I mean, what what— what what are they getting at? What what are they coming with, right? And, and what is and what does Jesus want to call them to? So the uh, I think one of the things we have to keep in back of our mind as we look at this text, and uh, in studying for this, it's the first time it ever uh, occurred to me, maybe because of the notes I was reading, is that at this time, which is toward the end of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist is already dead. The whole whole thing about John the Baptist is is all taken care of. And if you remember the story about John the Baptist, why he was arrested was that he had accused King Herod or his wife, actually, of committing adultery. Now, the details on that was, um, so John denounced Herod Antipas or Antipas mm-hmm. and his wife Herodias. Antipas had persuaded Herodias, who had previously been his brother's wife, Herod Philip. Mm-hmm. So the, the the first marriage was Herod Philip to Herodias. Antipas had convinced his sister-in-law Herodias to marry him. So according to the law of Moses, Herodias, because uh, she had broken up with her husband, she was the old adulteress. So there was adultery involved, and John the Baptist called them out. That's calling out power, you know, people that are doing right. wrong and power. It's a dangerous thing. And then mm-hmm. also, Antipas was guilty of violating the laws of affinity. It's in Leviticus 18.16, where you can't marry your brother's wife, even if he's died. Um, right. So uh, both husband and wife the king of the Jews, that is Herod Antipas, and the queen had been called out by John the Baptist. He was put into prison, and you know the story, he was executed after the, the famous dance of Salome. So now the Pharisees come up, and it's not just a theoretical question. It's like, are you going to hold up the law of Moses to the letter like John the Baptist did, because if you do, we're going to report you to Herod. Hmm. You know, so there's more than just a theoretical question or how does the law apply? It's we've got a trap. And that's what the word test usually means when the Pharisees or scribes do that to Jesus. Right. So is he going to is he going to accommodate? Is he going to, uh, you know, going to back off because he knows what's going to happen? Uh, and they're just looking forward to doing that. So um, so that's what their intent is. And then he uses that as a teaching moment um, instead of uh, simply condemning the, the king and queen as John the Baptist did. He sees the longer issue is the teaching of the church. 
Um, and how is the church to manage this? Because, uh, as he knows in the future, the church will consist of people, some of whom are uh, married, husband and wife, are both believers, and they're both followers of Jesus. That is, they want to follow what Jesus does, and that's not so much of a problem for them. But then there are people that uh, are married to unbelievers, and that's going to be a problem. And Paul deals with that in 1 Corinthians 7. And then there are people that are weak in the faith, and for whatever reason, they don't get along. So how does all that work out into the future with this Christian church, and when they may not be living in a culture or society that understands any of this, which the Roman Empire didn't? So, uh, so he uses this as a teaching moment, and uh, it's this passage and its variants in the Gospels is one of two or three key passages that deal with the issue of marriage, divorce, remarriage, and all that. And this is what we mm-hmm. look to from Jesus' teaching on this. I think that's a really helpful way, though, of breaking it down, because uh, yeah, I, I think we don't appreciate that. We can kind of just... Uh, skip over that, that this testing word, right? Like, oh, well, they just wanted to kind of see what he was going to say or something like that. Uh, but you're right. The word there, and the word in Greek, right? I mean, this is um, this is the same word that, what's the same root is what we have in the, the Lord's Prayer. At least not into temptation, right? Like, right. like trial and testing, right? Um, a kind of, I mean, you could even translate it as like a affliction, right? So there's this sense, as you were saying, they're trying to get him into trouble. <laughs> they're trying to get him into hot water. In fact, they're perhaps thinking to themselves, because we, we, we saw back in chapter three of Mark that the Pharisees went out and they conspired with the Herodians. So, I mean, is it possible even <laughs> that this Herodians have suggested, well, hey, uh, we got John the Baptist killed that way, so just have, have Jesus say the same stuff, and maybe Herod will just do you the favor just as, just as he's already done with John the Baptist. So they really are pushing on him a, a politically charged question. I think you're totally right. It's it's not just they're just saying like, well, I wonder what he's going to say on this on this innocuous theological issue or something. Right. So so they they come at him with this, and it's, it's just amazing because you know we've we've seen you know and elsewhere in the Gospels you get this too too like with the uh, the question about paying taxes to Caesar. Right. They give him politically charged hot button questions and say, what, what's he going to say? And, and every time they do this, you know, the Lord Jesus, he just comes back with these answers that no one can, no one can fault. And they're just, they're just brilliant. And he just says, he just basically just goes back to Genesis and it's just like, well, what are you, what are you going to say? Well, you, you, mean, you can't, you can't badmouth Genesis, right? Uh, you, <laughs> I mean, that's no, no one's going to do that. That's, that's the Pentateuch. That's Moses. So, so, he, he flips it around on him, but it is interesting how the disciples, they go back uh, to the house, it says, with them, and, and privately, right? <laughs> They're right. like, no, no, hang on a second, Lord. Really? <laughs> that, that's, that's, uh, that, that you've drawn a pretty hard line in the sand. So, I mean, isn't it interesting, though, that for all the brilliance of his answer, it's troubling even to the disciples? Yeah, and the other thing to notice is I don't think Jesus directly answered the question, not directly. Yeah. You, you notice he often does that. So oh, sure. that when he's given a question, he replies with a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's a sign of a good teacher. Uh, <laughs> it, it's a type of Socratic 
what they call Socratic dialogue it right. is you're trying to lead you don't give the answer but you try to lead the student in the direction which they might learn about it and accept it so considering his audience because he's got enemies on the one side but then he also has his disciples who are listening um, he, he doesn't answer directly until he's just with his disciples and then he answers the question you know so the what he does set up in verse 11 and 12 is the idea of who is the innocent or guilty party. Uh, you know, we don't use that terminology in American society now because right. we have no-fault divorce. But it's based on this that the Christian church for 2,000 years had the notion of, okay, if there's a divorce, who is to blame? And, and it's right. this is very simple, but it it produces the basic idea. And that way then the church can deal with its members who are going through divorce in a fair and equi equitable way. Right. I think, I think that's really essential seeing just, uh, there's a different way of looking at the whole question. Um, as you were saying, taking us back to Leviticus earlier, um, it, there's a little bit more that maybe we can say about this, but first we got to take our break. Everybody hang on. We're looking at Mark chapter 10 here on Thy Strong Word. We'll be right back. Wednesday on Issues Etc., we'll study the Ascension Hymn, A Hymn of Glory, Let Us Sing, with Pastor Will Whedon. We'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on the conversion of Paul in Acts chapter 9 and its media coverage of religion with Terry Mattingly. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. The Lord be with you. I am Daniel Speckard, pastor at Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois, inviting you to join us for worship on Saturday evenings at 5 and Sunday mornings at 9, and for fellowship time, Bible study, and Sunday school on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Find us at 6809 Godfrey Road in Godfrey, Illinois, on Facebook or at flcgodfrey.org. I'm Pastor Ken Bomberger. Join me weekday mornings at 7.15 for Oratio, your time of scripture, meditation, and music on KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. everybody to thy strong word i'm pastor aj espinosa we're looking at mark chapter 10 today joined by our guest pastor martin noland pastor at grace lutheran church in san mateo california if you've got a question for us and you're listening live here's a good opportunity we've got some that came in over email we'll take a look at in just a second here you can call 1-800-730-2727 
Also, 314-821-0850 if you're in St. Louis. You can always send an email as well, kfuo at kfuo.org. And as always, we thank our underwriters at the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Thank you guys for underwriting Thy Strong Word. Their website is lhfmissions.org. All right. So, yes, uh, you were just, uh, Brother, giving us a, a little bit more of this, this sense here, you know, uh, that there is there is a, a a guilty party and an innocent party. Uh, this is that the this is the way that the idea of uh, adultery is conceived of. And in fact, I think this is a uh, you know kind of a kind of more literal way of even looking at adultery. Right? You look at the uh, the word adulterate. Um, it means to you know contaminate something basically, or to to mix it. Right? And so um, whenever you have uh, a contamination. There is a contaminant, right? There is a there is a thing or an event when when that happens, and so uh, it, I think in this this kind of older, more traditional way of looking at it, there is there's someone who who's doing this, right? Who who initiates this, and, and so I think uh, I think this is a little bit of the idea here when when he gets into this thing about um, you know who's the one who um, really adulterates. The relationship, and what, what was interesting to me, and I didn't really hear this, I think, until I went to seminary, was that uh, you know we were, you were mentioning about who you're allowed to marry and who you're uh, not, and in Leviticus it spells out uh, one of those things is you're not you're not allowed to marry um, your your sister-in-law, <laughs> um, even if she divorces her uh, husband. You know, there's there's one, uh, but another is you're not allowed to marry your ex-wife if she's gotten remarried if she if she remarries um, even if she divorces her husband later or um or if she uh, or if her her new husband were to die later uh, th- that that's 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 off that's off limits you can't do that and so what's interesting here when he when he the lord talks about this here in verse 11 right uh when you talk about divorcing your wife and marrying another right I think that's the point that he's getting at, that once you've done that, there's no reconciling with that spouse anymore. Now you have really separated what God joined together. You remove the chance of two people being able to reconcile and to uh, come back together, what you know, these two people that God had joined. Right. And and we know, as certainly as Lutherans, that there's forgiveness for these things, but right. uh, it as Luther talks about marriage, uh, his two major essays are this in the, uh, let's see, it's volume 45 or 46 of Luther's works. Um, this is something that deals with the temporal realm, <clears throat> with the, you know, it's a temporary thing. You, you, you might be married for a long time, and many people are, but it's still uh, part of the temporal goods. And Luther believed that this should be managed or uh, adjudicated in cases of divorce by the civil courts and not by the church. And this is where there's a difference, a big difference between the Protestants and the Catholics, where the Catholics see marriage as a sacrament. And once uh, somebody has been married, uh, so two baptized people, two Christians are married, they can never be divorced at all, even if one of them commits adultery. Uh, which is just kind of mind-boggling. But what they do instead is they say, well, there's an annulment and that there never really was a marriage. So the 
You right. have to understand when you talk to Christians uh, around the world that if they're in the Roman Catholic Church, they have a completely different understanding. And it's a, lo a long historical development how they got there. But the Protestants simply went back to these words of Jesus <coughs> and said, <coughs> here, these, these are the key passages, but then also in Matthew where he says that, uh, that if uh, divorces his wife, except for the case of adultery, so uh, that's not here in Mark, so that if, if your spouse commits adultery, you are free to, to divorce them and remarry. In other words, the person who committed adultery is the, uh, is the person that's at fault, and then the, that person is free to divorce and remarry. And that really doesn't exist in the Roman Catholic understanding. So when Catholics and Protestants talk together about marriage and divorce, they often get confused about these things because they're working with two totally different systems. The Protestant system simply takes Jesus' words as they stand in the Gospels, also adding in 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about it, and that covers it. I mean, that's the structure. So, uh, but anyway, uh, so anytime we talk about these issues, these are the what they call the sedes doctrina. They're the, the seats, the main places where we look to, to, uh, to justify or to understand what we're doing in the area of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Right. And, and I think that's helpful, too. You mentioned, you know, the differences between what you have here in Mark and what you have in Matthew. And, and, and I think what that speaks to, um, among other things, is that, you know, we're, we're not dealing with the Lord Jesus kind of giving the new set of rules, right? Like, okay, well, right. this, is, this is how you're going to do all this. And because if he had... Um, well, it would be disturbing that the rules are different in Mark than they are, <laughs> are in Matthew. But uh, rather, what, what he's doing, right, and we got to remember this, right, look at the context. You know, he's, he's getting out of a trap here. And, and, right. and the way of diffusing this, this political trap is he's saying, well, you know what, okay, you've come at me with a political trap. I'm going to come at you with just Scripture and the heart of God. This is actually God's design that he meant for marriage to be lifelong, not for all of this stuff that you guys are doing. It's not as if, if you just fill out the paperwork, then all's all's good, right? Um, I, I mean, and, and yeah, I mean, I don't want to cast aspersions on you know particular religious traditions, but I mean, um, right. I, I think that even even from a Catholic perspective, right, um, that the, they would say like you know, oh, it's not as if you know if you just oh get an annulment, then okay, it's like it's like fine. There, there's nothing to repent of there. It's all good because you filled out everything, right? Um, so so yeah, I, I think that that certainly there the the challenge. Then I think getting back to that bigger theme is that following Jesus means he's not going to give you some easy answer that's like, oh, hey, well, check these boxes and fill out this form and it's all good. You know, don't worry right. about it. Um, that's not what Jesus gives you. Jesus gives you, this is, what's, this is what God's design is, which means, oh no, even if I outwardly, you know, check all the boxes and file all the, the paper with the state or whatever else, it all comes back to my heart still. It all comes back to is my heart aligned with God's heart? And of course, the answer is always when we when we look deep enough, going to be no, um, and show the need for repentance. So I, I think that that's that's um, kind of back on this bigger theme here: the, the challenge that following Jesus means you got to give up 
the, the pretenses that everything is a-okay, which, I mean, really kind of brings you to the, the rich young man who, who wants to say that he's kept all the commandments since his youth, and it's like, yeah, if you're going to follow Jesus, you've got to let that go. And the last comment I have on uh, this uh, section on divorce and marriage is what we need to hear and teach our children is verse 9, mm-hmm. is what God has joined together. So who who is making the decision? God gives the uh, the bride and the groom the choice of who to pick. Mm-hmm. But once they have once they have gotten together before the community and consummated the marriage, God has joined them together at that point. He gives them the choice of who. But once you've picked, then you're you're joined together by God. It makes marriage a sacred thing, and therefore, the the choice is passed. Once you're married, there is no longer a choice. And this is something that our modern day world doesn't understand. And even a lot of so-called Christians don't understand it because we have this idea of a freedom of choice. And we Mm -hmm. have lots of choices in the United States. We're a very free people. But as Christians, we have to say, once you're married, that choice is gone. You, you You are bound together by God's design and God has joined you together. Uh, that's well said. We we really, and we've seen this before too. And Mark, it's it's just the Lord's the Lord's method here. The the perspective that we have of the faith is not well. Here's the rules, and then once you kind of know the rules and the boundaries, well, then this is your op your your area for kind of operating in, right? And this is right. you know to kind of just do things according to whatever your fancy is, right? Just kind of okay, yeah. Well, I can do this. I can do that. Yeah, I I can do that. There's no rule in the Bible that says. That's just not the Christian perspective at all. The Christian perspective is not, okay, what are the arbitrary rules that God gives me, and then kind of like, how how close to the line can I get? People are going to get sick of me saying this. Uh, but, but but the Christian perspective is like, what what is God calling me to do? And that's what the Lord right. Jesus is emphasizing. What's your calling, actually? And, and and to your point, right, when God joins you together with somebody, you've been you've been called. You know, that, that, that's right. your— you know, calling from God, and it's 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 in many ways one one of your very highest callings in this life, um, and we can't forget that. But um, well, but before we get to the to the rich young man and uh, and the children a little bit more, um, a little bit of a a couple of questions, just a opper, uh, opportunity here. So you know, he he gets. I think there's this connection between these first three. Um, you know, the little children then come. Um, and then the rich man comes, and, and kind of at the end of this section, you know, he's uh, he's really leaving the disciples with yet another challenge. They're exceedingly astonished, right? You know, at first they had their concerns about the teaching on marriage. Now they're now they're just astonished. Then who can be saved? They say, right? So here's the question here. Um, so what is this? This is interesting here. What's the distinction between being saved and being uh, delivered. This might be like a linguistic question, but um, I think they they follow it up with like, who can be saved, who should be saved, how are we saved? Uh, but so yeah, I, I think the the question is just kind of getting at, you know, what what does he mean? What what do they mean, and what does he mean when they ask who can be saved? Um, you know, are they are they getting at what we would refer to as like faith and salvation and all the rest? Um, like, what what are they really talking about here? Well, yeah, I, I mean that this is one of the, uh, the <laughs> it's the the frustrating words. I mean, they thought, well, you know, we follow Jesus and we've been doing that for the last two or three years, 
and we kind of get it. And now in verse 24, he says, children, now he's referring to his disciples, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And they're all thinking, wait, we thought it was fairly easy. <laughs> yeah, and we thought we were in already. <laughs> we thought we were already there. <laughs> yeah. They're looking at each other thinking, oh, no, what did we get into? And then he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they think, well, am I a rich man? You know, and they, they look around and they say, wait, Judas, you've got a lot of money. Are you going to huh? make it? <laughs> he probably thinks... Well, I don't have any money. Oh, <laughs> I yeah, that's, that's <laughs> right. I just had the bag. Yeah, I know. I just had the bag. And, and they, they look around. Wait, James and John, you, your dad has, you, you know, when he dies, he has all those, the fishing fleet, a fisherman's wharf. You know, you're going <laughs> to inherit all that. You won't make it. You know, it just totally boggles their mind. Well, I, I can't imagine. <laughs> They're not well, just I astonished. They're confused. <laughs> I wonder, that's an interesting angle. I'm not sure I'd thought about because, you know, I mean, I mean, James and John right later are going to ask like, Hey, can we sit at your right and left? I mean, they, they might be thinking that they're kind of making a long-term investment here and that they kind of expect to maybe not be wealthy right now, but they stand to be rather wealthy, right? When they're the, you know, 12 leaders who are like, you know, 12 Kings uh, of the new administration. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that is an interesting angle to consider that maybe they're thinking to themselves, well, hang on a second. Like, we're, uh, we, we were hoping to become rich, and now you're saying that maybe we shouldn't. Well, here's another thing. I mean, you know, Jesus doesn't come on as a king. Um, you have to say, what figure in the Old Testament are they comparing him to? You know, we do that in our culture where we see a leader. Well, let, let, let's say, let's take basketball. And we see a, a basketball player that's really good on the court and he sticks out his tongue we think hey there's Michael Jordan you know the next Michael Jordan so what figure are they thinking that Jesus matches well he's not a king like David he's not simply a prophet and if they believe what they have thought about him you know he's the Messiah there's got to be kingly aspects to him the only figure that comes close is Moses because Moses was a prophet and Moses t went out and talked with God like Jesus did. Moses did miracles, but he wasn't really a king. So that the, the type of king that they're envisioning Jesus is a Moses type of figure. But the, mm. see, the thing is, the successors of Moses was Joshua. And Joshua was a great general. And all the, all the leaders, uh, they inherited the Holy Land. Yep. You know, so... This is what they're thinking. They think this is a new Moses, and when he's gone, we're going to, you know, if we don't inherit, at least we're going to be rulers of some sort because we're close to him. And he's saying, no, that's not what I'm here for. Right. No, 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 that, that, that's right. So he has he has this moment where he's just really having to try to you know, clarify things. And, I mean, in fact, um, you know, I, I think you're right that there's a strong comparison to Moses. I mean, but there's even one to, to David, and we, we saw that with, um, you know, for instance, even the feeding of the 5,000, right. where like David, he takes the five loaves of, you know, the, you know, kind of there's an allusion, I think, to the bread of the presence, right? Um, and, and here, and actually, we see this uh, to, today at the end of the chapter, what's he get called by Bartimaeus? Son of David. <laughs> and uh, right. does he say, hey, don't call me that. Like, no, no, that, that's not who I am. I'm the son of man. He says, uh, yes, speaking. 
I mean, he just accepts it, which I think has everything to do with then next time you get the triumphal entry. Um, why would there be this big parade? Well, he just kind of tacitly admitted that he's the son of David, right. which is a big deal. Um, I mean, everyone's just going to want to try to, you know, have him crowd surf or something because he just admitted that, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and be king. I mean, just having that David connection. So he's having to definitely correct their impression, though, and say, well, you know, maybe I am like Moses, maybe I am like David, maybe I am like Joshua. Of course, his name is Joshua, <laughs> um, but maybe not in the way that you think. And right. uh, and, and, that, and that certainly is the, uh, the the challenge here. We'll have to pick up the, the pace a little bit here. I, I want to get to James and John and Bartimaeus, but maybe before we get there, I mean, kind of just kind of tying this together with the children and the rich young man. I, I mean, I, I think we were talking about it already that you know, th this idea of, um, you know, having terms and coming and following him, right? Being uh, saved and, and back to the email question about uh, saved or delivered, you know, that, that, that delivered is an old word for basically rescue. Um, basically when the translations got updated, deliver turned into rescue because deliver now sounds like something you do with pizza and not with uh, people uh, so much. <laughs> um, and so the idea though, right, uh, being being delivered, being rescued, it, it's like with Moses or like with David, right? What, when, when you have salvation, it's because they rescue you from the enemies, the rescue from the enemies of God. And so I think that that's, you know, part of the, the big challenge here, right? Um, it's that they don't even realize it, but the enemy they have to be rescued from is their own sinful pride that says, oh, hey, look, I've, yeah, since I was a child, I did all this stuff. The children don't have that pride. They, they can't go back and say, oh, yeah, right. well, yes, ever since I was a child, I've kept all these commandments, right? Uh, but that's the thing. Jesus needs to deliver us, to rescue us, to save us from our own pride, which, which wants to stand on its own uh, laurels, right? Right, right. And, and I, I think uh, this little children passage is, there's a whole lot in there, and we just, we don't have the time that's left, but it, that's the one that most challenges us today, everybody. I mean, th there's temptations for those that are in the church, the James and John temptation, and there's the rich man temptation for those who have riches. But everybody is challenged by whoever will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Everybody yeah. has to think about that one. And what does right. that mean? Yeah, certainly. All right. Well, let's go ahead then and take a little bit of a look at these last two then. Because I think there is a deliberate, and actually a, it's pretty brilliant too, what, what uh, you have in Matthew is, is really kind of cool. Because in Matthew, if my memory serves, um, he actually has two blind men. Which is really fantastic then because you have the, the James and John, the two disciples, and then there's two blind men, um, both who have a request. So I feel like the juxtaposition is uh, even stronger in some ways in Matthew, but I, I feel like there seems to be this kind of juxtaposition, right, where you've got, you know, both of them are making a request of Jesus uh, as if Jesus is a king, right? Uh, you know, you got James and John who are like, hey, we know you're coming into your kingdom. Could we say you're right and you're left? You got blind Bartimaeus, who's like calling him son of David, you know, that, that kingly term. So they both approach him as a king, but one of them what um, once you know, with glory and authority, or, or I mean, the, the one pair, really, the disciples. But then the other, he just wants to be healed. So, I mean, I don't know. What, what, what do you think about these two here at the end? 
Well, you're right that the, the two sections are connected because in both cases, the, the wording is the same. 36, what do you want me to do for you? That's Jesus to James and John. And 51, what do you want me to do for you? Is to blind Bartimaeus. So, yeah, I mean, that ties those two. Get to, That's a good point. I'd never seen that before. Um, so Jesus is the one that is able to do things for people. Mm-hmm. Um but the question is, what we ask him, is it, is it something that he wants to give us? I mean, because James yeah. and John are asking something. No, he says, that's not proper. So, I mean, we learn from that in our prayers. There are things that we ask for that are not good for us or anybody else, and God's just not going to give it to us. In the case of blind Bartimaeus, because he had faith yeah. in Jesus, Jesus gave it to him. And it was something that was to his benefit and those around him. So I, I think we learned something about prayer here, certainly. Um, and that's my initial thought. Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's really good. You know, it's uh I mean that, that's and that's what Luther says what what prayer is basically, right? He says what's prayer? Well it's it's asking God for something. Um, you know, and I, I it's a it's this really simple definition, but I always I always get back to it myself. Um, cause sometimes, you know, I'll just, you know, confessions of a pastor here, right. Uh, you know, people look at you and they're like, here, you say that prayer. Right. And, and they're, and they're, and they're doing that sometimes cause they're like, well, you'll say a good one. That sounds nice. <laughs> right. And so, you know, you're like, okay, well, you know, I, I can, I can put a prayer in that, you know, has allusions to scripture and, you know, maybe I can draw on some traditional prayers that I know and things like that. Right. But but, you know, as you're thinking about prayers, it's like, hang on a second. Let's go back. Keep things simple. Have I asked for something? Um, you know, and so, right. yeah, um, I mean, to their credit, they, they come to Jesus, um, you know, James and John, they ask for something. And what, what's interesting here, too, is like, I, I really don't think we should. Uh, I don't think we're supposed to be, again, like having this reaction of, oh, well, James and John, what blockheads? You know, he wasn't that kind of kingdom. Uh, I, I mean, it's interesting, right? Uh, they they say we want you to do something for us, and, and Jesus is like, sure. I I mean, right? He doesn't he doesn't like say like, well, what are you doing like asking for me for things? Right. Um, and then when he even when even when he says, you know, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Um, and, and they say uh, we are able. They don't they don't do it with any pretense there. If you look at the original language, they don't say we are able. You know, as if like you know they can and the other ten can't. Uh, right. No, they just say oh, they just say yeah. Uh, we, we, I mean, seriously, we, we're, is, this is a very much, uh, you know, I, I've likened this before to when we do um, baptisms or confirmations and we say, you know, would you rather, you know, basically face death than fall away from this faith? And then the expected answer is y- yes, with the help of God, <laughs> you know, I, I, and, uh, you know, it's, so it's, it's a serious moment. And Jesus says, you know what? Yeah. And you, you know what? You're going to drink this cup and you're going to, you're going to have this baptism. Again, referring to the prediction he just made about his death and resurrection and i mean the spitting the flogging and all the rest right um so he doesn't he doesn't criticize them for asking he's just saying guys you just don't really know what the glory looks like and we talked about this a little bit uh, on the episode uh, yesterday that glory for jesus is is the glory of the love of god and being able to, to show God's love, well, he does it most gloriously and most profoundly while he's dying. Right. And and when you look at what Jesus said, the drink the cup, 
well, that is a reference to his death and baptism. I, you know, the apostle James did die. He was the first of the 12 to die by execution or martyrdom. Um, and John, too, at the end of his life was, according to tradition or history, was boiled in oil. So there, there was some literal uh, uh, fulfillment of that translation or that, that prophecy there. But it, uh, what I'm interested to see is verse 40. He says, it's not mine to give the right or left hand. Sure. And what does that mean? I don't know. But it's very interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so so it, 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 the service in the kingdom is not for getting higher up. The service is for the service itself. And the well, rest of it is just comes, whatever. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it, it's about it's about the be, being a servant, right? Being a slave. Right. And um, just like you were saying, you know, I mean, well, if, if we make the connection again to the cross, right, people have said it before, well, who ends up on his left and his right? <laughs> well, you know, by church tradition, we're get, they're given the names like uh, Dismas and what's the other guy's name? I always forget the other guy's name. Uh, but the two thieves, right? And it literally right. was was not for the Lord Jesus to grant, uh, because it, you know, I guess Pilate and the Romans, um, who of course were put there by God. But I mean, so that's interesting because I, I I think it's just a statement of his humiliation, right? Where he's just saying, yeah, the way that I'm doing this, though, like if I'm going to go and die on the cross, I don't, I kind of, you know, it kind of just by default, I'm not picking who's there on the side of me. Um, you know, what is what is interesting is that he does pick blind Bartimaeus. He picks those who um, who come to him in faith again, um, who have just responded to the word, and that's why he calls out son of David, son of David. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you, you have just a, a very powerful, um, you know, conclusion here at the end, just juxtaposing these two. You know, may we see our sin and just want healing uh, and forgiveness from Jesus and understand the kind of glory he gives us. Thanks well, for having me, Pastor Espinoza. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, brother. Looking forward to having you on again soon. God bless your Easter season. God bless you too. Thank you, everybody. That was the Reverend Dr. Martin Noland, pastor at Grace Lutheran Church, San Mateo, California. Moving on to Mark 11. Till then, You've Pastor A.J. Espinoza. Peace. Word. Produced by the Lutheran Church, Missouri Senate Office of National Mission in cooperation with Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the LCMS. Your support is vital for this program to continue. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Thy Strong Word.